Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, and going through verse 35. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Our speaker today is one that is known to the assembly here. Him and his wife have been in fellowship for some time. We're anxious to hear what Brother Don Pell has to share from the Lord. Brother Don. As you know, it's that time of year when the world is concentrating its attentions on the birth of Christ. Have you ever heard a Christmas message in July? How about August? You know, there's no reason why we couldn't, is there? But we don't typically do that. We kind of wait until December, and then we, just like Easter, we don't usually do a lot of resurrection messages during the time other than that season of the year. But all of God's truth is good to be talked about through the entire year. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 9. And there are some very familiar verses, but I want to begin reading it from verse number 1. Isaiah chapter number 9 and beginning at verse number 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. So here they're Children of God are in kind of an oppressed situation. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. 
and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. So now in the midst of all of these things, we have these two, this marvelous, marvelous verse. Two verses, actually. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Some believe that Wonderful Counselor is actually a combined term in and of itself. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here we find Isaiah predicting two advents. The first one is going to be a child born, a son given, and a wonderful counselor. There'll be another event when the world will recognize the mighty God the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So we're going to draw our attentions to that very first event. A child born, a son given, and a wonderful counselor. Isaiah's predicting a child would be born who possesses and will possess characteristics unlike anyone before or after him. When we look at these basic characteristics, we begin to realize that this is speaking of an entirely unique, amazing person. And Isaiah is saying this and predicting this many, many years before it ever happened. And we now have the history in knowing that it did happen exactly as Isaiah had said. A son is given. It's interesting to notice that the son was given before the child was ever born. So we have a son given, and now a child is born. How could Isaiah make such a statement about one who isn't even born yet? Have you ever uh, been involved in the process? I know some of you have. You clearly have. You've been involved in the process of anticipating an expectant child. And you begin to wonder different things about that child. Back in the day before we had the ultrasound and the sonogram, one of the big things you used to wonder about it, will it be a what? A boy or a girl? Now you had a 50% chance of being right or wrong, did you not? Either going to be a boy or a girl. And people would really wonder about that during the entire pregnancy. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side had eight children. They all eventually married and have offspring of their own. Now, Grandpa maintained <clears throat> that if he saw a lady about the first or second month of pregnancy, he could determine the sex. Now, I don't know what kind of track record Grandpa had, but we finally figured it out. What Grandpa really wanted to do is be the very first one to know whether or not 
his daughter or his daughter-in-law was pregnant. So therefore he would say, you know, you've got to let me know the very first month and the second month, and I can tell the sex. Otherwise, you know, too late, too late. The time is gone. So we no longer need to worry about that or think about that, although there are some people, who, as we know, who choose not to know. They don't have to worry about buying blue or pink. But boy, then there's some other things that we often perhaps speculate about. What will he, and I'm going to use Hugh as a man-child now and cover the ladies as well, but just so I don't have to keep changing pronouns, will um, he be, what will he be like? Will he have grandpa's fierce temper? Or will he have mother's gentle nature? Will he be a rebellious child or will he be a complacent and a compassionate child? Will he have dad's brown eyes or mother's blue eyes? And so we speculate about this child. What what will that child be like? Is he going to be smart? I mean, really smart? Or maybe just average or maybe not so smart? We wonder about all these things, but you know what the most important thing I think that people concern themselves when anticipating a child is, will he be healthy? I don't care if it's a boy or a girl. I don't care if the eyes are blue or brown. I don't care if he's going to be temp- have a temper or not have a temper. I want a healthy baby. Five fingers on each hand. Five toes on each foot. And of course, I think that's perhaps one of the greatest anxieties. Well, we have a baby here who was born perfectly. This child, we find in Isaiah's description, is eternal. This child existed before time ever began. That's why Isaiah was able to refer to him as the mighty God, the everlasting Father, because the the mighty God and the everlasting Father was already among them. His preexistence is revealed in both the Old Testament and then again confirmed in the New Testament. Psalm 40 and 8, we read, Then he said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. And that's repeated in the book of Hebrews, where it also tells us that a body hast thou prepared me. We go to Psalm 110, and in verse 1 we read, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. And so now we get to the Gospels, and it's confirmed. It's a fact now. In the beginning was the Word, John reports in his first chapter of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, that Son who was given. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. I know some of these facts are things that we carry around with us, but it's nice to notice, and I was going to say the beginning of salvation's plan, but that's wrong, isn't it? The beginning of salvation's plan was drawn up in eternity past, but the execution of salvation's plan is found right here when God became flesh. And so we 
review all the important facts about the execution of salvation's plan. That's the child born. All great men start out as a baby. Do we know that? They don't, aren't delivered by the stork, as some had told children in days past. They don't do that anymore, do they? I don't think they do that anymore. But nonetheless, all men start out as babies. He didn't fall out of the sky either. He didn't even make the same kind of appearance that he may have made during those Christophanies that we often refer to when we think about that visitor who paid a visit to Abraham there that time, or maybe to Jacob. But nonetheless, he marked a beginning and time or his beginning of his time here on planet Earth. The angel explained it to Mary. We had Bob read those verses. This is how it absolutely happened. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. I'd like to just kind of go off on a little rabbit trail here just for a minute or two. We live in a, a day where an abortion is a big controversy. It's probably one of the biggest controversies in our nation right now. And people ask the question, where did conception begin? Was that Holy One alive at that time? I would think so, don't you? That Holy One is alive right there. So during conception, he the first fruits after them, those after his coming, I think it pretty ver verifies. You know, the very same people who will rejoice in the virgin birth are the same people who will say, well, life doesn't begin until the child's born. Kind of a contradiction, isn't it? The very way God came to earth to be born could convince us that, yeah, that's when it happens, when it's conception. Here, conceived by the Holy Spirit, but conception nonetheless. And it was real. That holy thing is real. Right then and there, he's real. Just as those who are conceived to become flesh and blood. Other thing I just want to mention briefly is this idea of Mary sometimes being called the mother of God. And the question is, is Mary the mother of God, or was Mary the mother of God? And it's kind of a foolish question, isn't it? We've already pointed out the fact that this Holy One is eternal. Mary marks the beginning. We can get into Luke's genealogy and find out all the begets, and we know who begat her. Interestingly enough, however, Jesus, the Eternal One, and I'm going to try to be cautious here because I know I'm treading on some dangerous ground. This is a mystery. It's a huge mystery. But Jesus now marks a beginning in his manifestation, not as a person. He's eternal. But a beginning of his manifestation as a man with a name. What? Parents name their children. They named him as they were ordered and instructed to do. Nonetheless, they named him. They could have named him something else, could they not? If they wanted to be disobedient, but nonetheless, they were obedient. So here's a point where the Eternal One marks a beginning with his manifestation in flesh and blood, 
using a virgin who, like any mother, carried that child to term, delivered that child, and like any other mother, cared for that child as he grew up there in Nazareth. So I believe we can say, without being um, incorrect, that Mary, in that sense, was the mother of Jesus. So she carried him in her womb. She gave birth to him. She cared for him like a mother at the cross. He acknowledged her. Mother, behold, thy son. But we cannot say, it would be blasphemy, I believe, to say Mary is the mother of God. That would be totally incorrect. Now, you say, well, that's, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it's a mystery. It's an absolute mystery. This is just something that goes beyond our absolute comprehension, but the Scriptures tries to explain it so that we can understand it in that same sense. You see, they were real parents. It was a real birth. It was a supernatural birth because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. It was a preternatural birth because it was determined hundreds of years before it ever happened. But then when it did happen, it was real. It was a natural birth. A virgin conceives, a virgin delivers a baby there in Bethlehem. Now, God's choice of parents was, was unlikely from man's perspective. Anybody that you could describe as the government on his shoulders, a mighty God, a everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace, I mean, that would be somebody you'd want some lofty, well-educated, well-experienced, influential people to serve as parents. But nonetheless, that wasn't God's plan. And those two people, Mary and Joseph, had two very important things going for them. First of all, Mary. Mary is credited with being a spiritually-minded person. We read that she kept and pondered things in her heart. Isn't it great to have a mother who's a spiritually-minded person? And then we have Joseph, and he sounds like he just came out of the woodwork, but he didn't just come out of the woodwork. God very specifically chose him as well. And Joseph did some very responsible things. Remember, not willing to make her a public example put her away privately, and he made some very important decisions that were most important to Almighty God. The other thing each of them had going for them is simply this. They were both from the right family. We find Joseph from David's son Solomon. We find that in Matthew's genealogy. We go to Luke's genealogy in chapter 3 where Mary's genealogy is mentioned and we discover that he is related through David's son Nathan. So David's son Solomon, David's son Nathan. Now here's the point. It's important. The virgin birth is important for this simple reason. He was not of Joseph's seed. He was not of Joseph's sinful, fallen seed. But Joseph did something really, 
really important. Remember, all the world had to go to their place of lineage where all the records were kept to be what? Registered. I think the word registered is better than taxed, actually, although tax probably had something to do with it. But they had to go there to be accounted for, to be registered. So when Joseph goes to Bethlehem with his pregnant wife to be registered, maybe not even anticipating when she would actually deliver, his son Jesus is born there. So what does he do? He registers his entire family. He registers himself, he registers his wife Mary, and he registers Jesus and the royal genealogy in Bethlehem, and now he is the rightful heir to whom? A person that God had promised that his kingdom would last and endure how long? Forever. Now, there were no kings presently sitting on a throne at that time, but God in his wisdom ordained that Jesus would come and fulfill the promise that he had given to David, and he did so through Joseph's adoption. You know, the other thing I like to often mention about this is what mattered most to God in his choice of his son's earthly parents? Affluency? Education? Wealth? No. What mattered most to God is that his son had caring, loving, obedient parents. And that's where it's all at, isn't it? We think about all the problems that we have in, in our society now. Would, it, would to God that every child would be born of caring, loving, obedient, God-fearing parents? Wow, wouldn't the world be a different place if that were true? And that's what mattered to God. Oh, you shouldn't have a child. You can't afford one. Well, maybe you can't. But that's not the most important thing, is it? The important thing is that you care for that child. You love that child. And that's the most important thing. Some people worry about being able to clothe their children properly. Those little rascals don't know if that's a Nike that they're wearing. Unless somebody tells them. If you don't tell them, they think it's the best pair of little tennies that they ever had. So that, that's just simply not important. It's important that they are cared for and they love. They don't know if your dad's rich. They don't know that. Not that. Maybe at a certain age they figure it out. But, you know, when they come along, first of all, they don't care. You can be living in a shack as long as you're cared for and loved. That's the nice thing about it, and you're innocent. You're just oblivious to all that sort of thing. It's the caring, loving parents. That's what mattered most to God, and that should be a lesson for all parents. But that's really what matters to Almighty God. Now, here's the thing. This Prince of Peace. What about this Prince of Peace? Um, With regard to one's relationship to Almighty God, there are really two kinds of peace that we can experience, and we think about that from time to time. First of all, we must have peace with God. The writer of Romans says that it's pretty simple, actually. You know, you don't really have to do very much to have peace with God. The only thing you have to do to have peace with God is to trust him as your Lord and Savior, repenting of your sins. It's a matter of faith. Therefore, being justified by what? Faith, right? We have peace with God. 
And then we discover that once we have that peace with God, he now allows us to have his peace, the peace of God. The writer of Philippians writes, puts it this way, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that's the peace, will guard your hearts and mine through Christ Jesus. So we have to have peace with God before we can have the peace of God. And the reason for it is simply this. Even though we think of ourselves as perhaps being peace-loving people, God is considered our enemy. The writer Romans says, if we were enemies, when we were enemies, rather, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so we needed to have peace with God, and the Prince of Peace came for that purpose. The carnal mind, the writer of Romans goes on to write, is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So why is man considered God's enemy and considered to be an enmity or an enmity against God? And of course we know the story, Billy Merchant referred to it this morning, inherited from Adam's fallen sinful nature. And God who hates sin can have no fellowship with a man who is in dead in trespasses and in sins. That's why the Prince of Peace came to planet Earth. That's what it's all about. To become a partaker of flesh and blood and able to die on the cross of Calvary for man's sin. Jesus Christ made it possible through this amazing story of redemption to die on the cross of Calvary for man's sin. He made it possible for Almighty God to bestow his love and grace on mankind without compromising his divine justice. And it's only to those who believe in his son. The scriptures make that clear. We often draw our attentions to probably the most familiar known verse of scripture. In chapter 3 of John and verse 16, and you've all committed it to memory, I'm sure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Whosoever believeth on him shall have everlasting life. We'll have the peace with God, the peace of God, and enjoy everlasting life. There's a uh, preacher that was quite well known in years past who used to present it this way. It's a fact, an act, and a pact. Have you ever heard that one? It's a fact, it's an act, and a pact. Well, it's a fact. God's the love of the world. That's a fact. God is love. He loved the world. It's an act. Mercy and grace, he gave his only begotten son. So we have a fact, and now we have an act. He did. Mercy is when God's love gets put into action on our behalf, and that's grace. And then we have a pact, and a pact's a two-part thing, you know. God's part, our part, rather, is believing. What's God's part? Everlasting life. So here you have it. You have a... A, hack, a fact, an act, and a pact. So having believed we have peace with God, 
You know, our nation claims they maintain peace through strength. When I was in the Air Force, we, I was part of a command that uh, was involved in the nation's security, and we had a motto, peace through vigilance. We wanted to make sure loose lips didn't sink ships and that sort of thing. We wanted to know what the enemy was doing. Jesus Christ, the babe in Bethlehem's manger, became a mighty conqueror over three basic things. First of all, over sin. A conqueror over sin. Titus says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. So he conquered sin. Then he conquered death. The writer of Hebrews says, He destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And then he defeated the grave. He put death to death. So this Prince of Peace is the mighty conqueror over sin and death and the grave. Paul could write to the Corinthians, Oh, death! Where is your sting, O grave? Where is your victory? And so he, truce is declared. God now calls us his friend, his child. John says, you are my friends. John writes, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And now we have the peace of God. We no longer worry about the future. It's the peace of God that keeps our hearts. And the promise of God's continual presence is with us. One of my mother's favorite verses was Hebrews 13 and 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Another one was casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. That's that Prince of Peace who enters the life of those who believe. We have an inheritance, incorruptible, that's undefiled, that doesn't fade away, and we have a reservation. And that reservation cannot be altered, and that reservation cannot be changed. Now, Isaiah wrote something else about this coming one, and this is a coming day. This has not been fulfilled yet. He says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. At a coming day, the Prince of Peace will return to earth, the next advent. And this time, not as the meek and holy, pure and lowly Jesus, but as a righteous king, as a righteous judge. And he will come with his saints. He's going to come with those who have already made peace with God. He's going to come with those who already have the peace of God. And John the Apostle writes about a scene in heaven. I love these. Don't you love these verses? We refer to them often in our remembrance meeting. The book of the Revelation predicts and looks at this coming day where the Prince of Peace will come and rule, truly, as the world will recognize him as such. And they sang a new song. Don't you love this? Remember, David said he put a new song in my heart, even praise to our God, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Why is he worried? Ah, you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people 
and nation. Wow, imagine that. And uh, we're going to be surprised, I guess, when we get to heaven. I would assume we're going to have a common language. I would think that would have to be the case if we were to really have fellowship with God and communicate with one another. But want to be something to recognize or get to know somebody in the deepest far reaches of Africa, for instance, who had received Christ as his or her personal savior. But here's another really neat thing, okay? This is really mind-boggling. You've made us kings and priests to our God. Are you ready for the next one? And we shall reign on the earth. Oh, how about that? So they're going to sing this new song. Now the Prince of Peace. Ah, now he's coming the second time. And he's going to set up a reign of righteousness. And we and all the peoples from all the further reaches of the world who have placed their faith and trust in him have made priests and we are going to reign on the earth. The old preachers used to have an expression, training for what? You ever heard that one? The idea is to the degree to which we have been conformed to the image of God's dear Son will reveal itself in eternity when God places responsibilities on us to reign along with the Prince of Peace. And here's the part that I must confess, I just can't wrap my arms around this one. I really can't. You know, I have two neighbors. They're the nicest people in the world. I'm pretty sure they're not, they're not believers. We're trying our best to try to make our testimony known there. They're some of the best. One of them has a key to my home. When we leave and go away, they have a key. They can go into my house, and they can make sure everything's in good order. Really nice people. Really nice people. Oh, I just have such a hard time with this. For he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Oh, I love that one, don't you? I mean, I can rejoice in that every day. He does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I can't wrap my arms around that. I really can't. Abraham said, will the God of all the earth do what? Right? Oh, I'm glad he has to sort that out, aren't you? Aren't you glad Almighty God is, is in charge of sorting out all these things between the nice people and the not-so-nice people and the evil people and the angry people and the unworthy people and the nice people and the meek people? Well, if they don't believe, they're outside of Christ. But we don't really know beyond that what eternity will be. But they're going to be still condemned. He that believes... Is not condemned, but he that believeth not is what? Condemned. Why? He doesn't believe. That's simple. So isn't it nice to see salvation's plan now executed? And I gotta say, it was executed with precision. We read some portions in Isaiah 53 this morning, and boy, we say Isaiah had it spot on, as the British would say. Spot on. Everything was done, and no plan B, no plan B, all plan A, salvation's plan, now executed with the birth of Christ. So it's nice, isn't it, 
Take this time of year to just kind of review all the reasons why we believe, all the reasons why God had this plan and how he executed, how carefully everything had to fall in place in order to obtain our salvation. We should find ourselves rejoicing in it all. You know, when I was younger, I had a lot of responsibilities with accounting and closing the books. Very, very stressful. Why? Of the week between Christmas and New Year's, everybody was out to lunch. And when I needed information to close the books, they weren't there. It was one of the most stressful times of the year for me, Christmas was. It really was. The saving grace was what? Yeah, that's right. I remembered <laughs> what it was really all about. I remembered, what, and I rejoiced at that along with the Lord's people. That, that saved it for me. That saved it for me. Look at the world with all the wars and the rumor of wars and all the greed and the giving of gifts and all that good stuff. Boy, you can put that behind you just enough to appreciate the fact that unto us a son is given and unto us a child was born. You'll call his name Jesus, he'll save his people from our sins, and then we're reminded that not only do the Jews have that assurance, but he's a propitiation for the sins of the entire world. Ah, great time, isn't it? Christmas time. Let's get pros and prayer. Father, indeed, we're thankful for the child who, the son who was given way back in eternity past. What a marvelous thing to think about that. The everlasting father, the mighty God. But then a son was born. Wow, the grace, salvation's plan. Oh, the grace. Oh, the love, rather, that drew salvation's plan in eternity past. But then the grace caused love operable that brought it down to man in the person of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. May we rejoice in this uh, truth as we celebrate this Christmas season. May these thoughts have been a blessing this morning, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.